So I, gotta, I, I need to make a correction from last week. I always have to correct myself. I always make mistakes. But um, correction on some datings that I, I had. I know uh, there were questions. So there were two questions po- posed. What is, what is the beginning of Puritanism? And um, <clears throat> who was ruling at the time of the Confessions? I mixed the two questions up and I uh, kind of put them all into one time period. I only spoke of Queen Elizabeth. Puritanism started with the reign of Queen Elizabeth, uh, around the reign of Queen Elizabeth. So that's late 1500s. And it ended with Charles II in 1662 when the Puritans were ejected from the Church of England. And the king who was ruling uh, during the drafting of the confessions was King uh, Charles I. So yeah, Charles I, he's beheaded. And then after um, Charles II takes over, he ejects the Puritans from the Church of England in 1662. So um, I I, I know many people have different views on the Puritans. My view is that that's when Puritanism ended. Because Puritanism has to do with the Church of England, purifying the Church of England. Outside of the Church of England, it's really, we we hold to some of the same uh, basic principles. We walk in the tradition of the Puritans, not, we're not necessarily trying to purify the Church right now, um, because we're the only pure Church, right? But uh, we're always reforming, Uh, we're always reforming, we're always considering um, why we do what we do and uh, how we can make it more sound or more biblical or less legalistic, right? Yes, Jesse. Just, just curious, would, so would Jonathan Edwards be considered a Puritan? No. No. Okay. I, I wouldn't consider. He walks in the tradition. I would say he walks in the tradition of the Puritans. Okay. Um, who's another one that... Well, you have the New England Puritans, but they came during that, that time period. Yeah. So okay. that's 1630. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, in my view, other, other people have different opinions. But, um, so that, I think that was the only <coughs> correction, I think. I'll probably go back and listen to it again, probably correct something else. But. So today we're continuing uh, the membership um, class. Uh, as a recap, I asked four questions. Yes, Luke. That's all part of it. No. How many times has the Westminster Confession been amended? I know that you and I talked when we were setting yeah. up the lights on Thursday. There was an amendment to it to, yeah. you know, after 1789 here in the United States. You know how many amendments? I'm just curious. I never looked that up. Okay. I didn't know if you knew off the top of your head. See, I don't know off the top of my okay. head, but I do have... That's something I can research. I have... You can find it on the OPC website. The American Revisions to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Okay. Uh, you could go right on o- opc.org and and they'll they'll give you like the original wording on one side and then the American revision. Um, okay. The biggest one, like I said, chapter 23 uh, on the civil magistrate, um, because of uh, the Revolutionary War and. Um, uh, most Presbyterians in the U.S. were in favor of the Revolutionary War and the separation of church and state. 
um, even though it's not worded that way, I know, but right. but um, uh, just that's just summarizing. We we don't want the state involved in spiritual matters, and, and that was the case even during um, during drafting up the Confession of Faith. So we have that in the Confession already that the civil magistrate uh, cannot govern the spiritual matters of the church, but the church expected the state to punish all evildoers, including those of false religion. So a, a contemporary example would be Islam. You know, Islamics in this country would be punished for worshiping a false god. That's the main, main difference is that in, the, in a, the U.S., rather the government is here to protect all religions. doesn't matter who. You have a freedom to believe false religion, right? Um, it's the duty of the church to proclaim the gospel so folks will hear the truth, turn and believe. And um, uh, the state is not here to promote the gospel. They're here to wield the sword, right? Romans 13. So that, I think that's the major difference between us here now uh, after 1789 and them then. Even... Over there now, I think conservative Presbyterians would agree with our... I think, so. our, I think most people would. M- most people would, yeah. yeah. Um, now there's... there's um, Vicky actually emailed me some good bit of history, which I wasn't aware of. Vicky, would you mind sharing what, what you shared with me? Sure. About the Covenanters. The Covenanters, yeah. yeah. Uh, the Covenanters under, what were persecuted under Charles II. Yep. Uh, They call it the Killing Times from 1683 to 89. And because the Covenanters um, wanted to promote, wanted the government to say that Christ was the head of the church and not the state. Hmm. Which, of course, Charles I was, you know, fighting against. Yep. That uh, they went and made their own solemn leaving covenant in 16-whatever. And, be, and because they would not come under the rule of Charles II and attend his church, they went into the fields and had covenant, uh, uh, what is it, covenants, conventicles, conventicles, where they worshipped out in the fields because they couldn't worship in a church, that they were sought by the dragoons and killed, mm-hmm. and their hands and heads put on the fence mm-hmm. to, as a, whatever. Um, men and women together did um, die during the killing times. And that was about five years. So when the Covenanters came to the United States, of course, this is in their memory. This is in England, right? Uh, no, Scotland. This is Scotland? This is Scotland. <clears throat> okay. Scotland, lower Scotland. And so when they came to the United States, this is in their mind. And even my great-grandmother, once she um, witnessed and evangelized some of my, my grandfathers and, and, what, and uncles, told them not to take an oath and not to vote because it was still part of the same, right. you know, covenanter. Um, we don't submit to an authority, uh, a government authority, that doesn't recognize Christ's crown and covenant. That's why you see that little flag yeah. when you go down. Yeah. And, um, yeah, even in, what, seven, 1831... The American Covenanters made their own covenant for America, which you'll find in the RP magazine. S- similar? To, similar. Similar to similar. the amendment to the Westminster Confession? 
No, uh, no, no. It's no, going the other direction. Going the other it's direction. Going the other way. Going the other direction, saying we will not, we will uh, disobey civilly disobey a government that does not recognize. Oh, really? Counter. Okay. Yeah, and your your Steelites. They followed a minister called Daniel Steele from the 1800s. They are very, very legalistic, and they go to that other extreme yep. where they even threaten to not pay taxes if they don't recognize Christ as, as uh, Christ's crown. Huh. Okay. So, so, so the year, what year did they allow voting? Uh, it's something that just happened over time. You know, I think people just people just did it. Uh -huh. There, there were more OP members joining. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> there, there's people that just did it, and uh, over time they just sort of lost, you know, their conservatism, quote unquote. That wasn't in their doctrine to, to deny voting. It was. Yeah. It was in the 1800s. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it was, and even uh, joining the military. So when my dad joined the military, there was stern frown from his great uncles. So, wow. wow. Yeah. So the question at hand there is the le legitimacy of pagan authority, if they're legitimate, right? Right, right. They would say no, we would say yes. We would say, yeah, we would say yes, based on Romans, again, Romans 13. Yeah, yeah. and uh, other examples from Joseph's story and... Absolutely, yeah. Uh, yeah. But, uh, and, and in their mind, it was what their fathers died for. Yeah. Versus... Which, we sympathize with that, that, that was clear persecution. It was, yeah, very good. Very good. So, um, she's our class historian. <laughs> Literally. Teacher and historian. So, I, I asked four questions uh, to begin our introduction to our church, to not only, you, you know, not only to this church, but also to the OPC broadly. And this, these questions were driven by a response to so-called uh, conservative American evangelicalism as it stands right now. It is in a bad place, uh, as we can tell, when speaking of membership and commitments to sound doctrine. You, you know, membership is not popular these days, and the conservative church has become worldly, disorderly, and political rather than heavenly and orderly, as we find described in the scriptures. Uh, so I asked the questions, what is the church? Included in that question was, what do we do in church? And that is worship and serve one another. Is the church an institution? We answered yes. Are we religious? Yes. Are we traditional? Yes. And that is where we left off. If you were to discuss these questions uh, on face value, and if you were trained in evangelical rhetoric, you would probably be heading for the hills at this point. Because being traditional has often been equated with being a traditionalist. Now, what is the difference? The traditionalist places priority of the tradition over and against the tradition and the foundation found in the Bible, right? But we, let's face it, every church is traditional. The question is, what is the foundation of the tradition? Where does the tradition find its roots? Uh, 
What is the first question that we ask of new members to answer? It is this question. Do you believe the Bible, consisting of the Old and New Testaments, to be the Word of God and its doctrine of salvation to be the perfect and only true doctrine of salvation? For us, our tradition is founded primarily in the Holy Scriptures and then deduced, right, by good and necessary consequence. What does that mean? Well, uh, God has given us a mind to think, right? God has given us the light of nature to figure things out, right? What is acceptable and what is not acceptable in, in worship. And oftentimes there are issues that come out of it, right? And you'll find differences between Reformed churches because of, because of that question, the, the wisdom question, right? Is this wise for worship or is it not? Or is this wise for the Christian uh, to practice or is it not? Um, uh, like our session, you know, we decide to have uh, recite uh, the Lord's Prayer after prayer every week. Not every OPC church practices that. That was something that the session decided way back when and thought it was fitting for our church to do. Uh, some churches have a lengthy confession of sin while we join our confession of sin with invocation right the elements are all there but how you use them uh is up to your discretion obviously we won't put the call to worship at the very end it's a call to worship so uh, god calls us to worship not the other we don't just walk in to worship uh on our by our own choice right so there are those little differences. Now, the traditionalist, what he will do, will place emphasis on the tradition over and against what the scriptures teach, even if it contradicts the tradition that he's fighting for, right? Uh, this is what we saw in Rome that led to the Reformation. Can you give a present-day example of that? Just curious. I mean, I'm trying to, I believe I can think of one, but I want you to go first. <laughs> you have one in mind already. Uh, disorderly worship, just broad category. Right. Just putting, every, flag, putting an American flag in the sanctuary? I, no, I, I wasn't, no, I wasn't well, thinking that. Not where, part of it, but. I don't know. I just, that is part of it, but um, no, I would think, yeah, disorderly worship. No, I'm talking about the traditional part of it. The oh, the traditionalist. Yeah, oh, okay. I'm, I'm looking for a traditionalist example of today. Um, An unbiblical, unbiblical tradition. tradition of today that you know that's common. No, I'm just. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm losing you. Uh, we could talk about Rome and all the problems right. there. We can talk about even the traditions. In the evangelical church, those contemporary traditions are becoming, right. they're becoming traditionalist to a sense. I, just, I, think of, I think of, I've been to uh, some Roman Catholic funerals and weddings where, you know, the bread and the wine, this is oh, yeah. Yeah. Christ. That, that's what I was thinking of, you know. This is the blood, this is the body of Christ, and that's how it's... Isn't it? Spiritual presence or transubstantiation? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, let's get into that. Jesus did say, This is my body. Yeah, um, yeah, okay. 
But no, I know what you're saying. I know, I know what you're saying. I'm, I know what you're saying. I, I know what you're saying. We we spiritually feed on Christ. Yeah. Right. Through, through that. Physical. Versus a physical feeding. Physical right. presence. Just physical see, presence. Yeah. That's a, that's a, okay. Yeah. So I'm not trying to dig anything up. I was just curious. Of, and I know what you mean by the um, disorderly worship as well. That's becoming a tradition now. Yeah. It, it has been. Yes, Vicky. Music is more important than the preaching of the word. Yeah. That's a modern evangelical yeah. tradition. That's becoming tradition. So that when you when you attend a church, they ask you, "Well, how's the music?" Yeah. Uh, you know, rather than. Or how's the, the nursery? How's the? Yeah. How's yeah. the child care? Yeah. What's the youth group like? You know, this what's the, yeah. Yeah. the priorities? Instead of, instead of even making the preaching of the word a priority in the service. Yeah, it's no longer central, mm-hmm. as we see in the New Testament church and in the Old Testament church, preaching was the priority, yeah. all every time, right? In Florida, when I went to the Westland uh, Church in Florida, the Sunday night service, there was no preaching at all, all music. Mm-hmm. Horns and mm-hmm. music, wow. all instruments and everything. It was beautiful, but... Yeah, it is. I mean, music is beautiful and... But it doesn't replace the word. No, it doesn't replace. It should it's, be a response to the word. Yeah, response or, yeah, res- yeah, call and response, that's... We call worship a dialogue. There's a call, there's a response, there's a call, response. Mm-hmm. Yeah, going back and forth. Yeah. Um, yeah, those are all examples. Um, and, and, you know, we all differ um, in worship. We, we think of psalms only, a cappella, versus hymns and piano or those, those things. And I think those are just um, little issues of I don't take that as a priority. It's confusing, what is it? Elements versus circumstances. Mm-hmm. We have our elements in worship. The circumstance, we shouldn't be fighting over. Um, if I came, I, I've said this before, if I came here and all we had were young guys who played guitar and drums, I mean, I would probably use them as long as the pastor's leading, you know, or an elder's leading worship. Uh, have the elements, it's just the circumstance is a little different. So... Um, so again, you know, part of the tradition is also not to become, we're, we're biblical, but on the other end, not to become legalistic with the, with the tradition. So, um, so that, that goes back to the Reformation, and um, the point of the Reformation was not to cut ourselves totally from the Christian tradition that was founded up to that point. Um, the Reformation was about reforming. That's, that's why we call it a Reformation. We're reforming, not destroying, and not trying to replace the church with something new. Right? The intent, intent was not to split from Rome. It was to reform it, which means to go back to the basics. Uh, whether you're, you're gathering evidence from the early church, right? Uh, the more I read about the early church, the more I see they were Presbyterian in their practice. And, and the bishopric and the bishops and all this, uh, the prelacy, the, the hierarchy of bishops, this came much later as um, two, two things occurred between um, uh, small towns and cities uh, and the distance between the two. So they needed one guy to unite the two. Well, the, you have a countryside and then you have like Watertown. You had one guy who would oversee both, 
right? But two separate pastors, and that's why uh, they started finding this hierarchy of bishops. So it had to do with circumstances. Um, and so, but originally, they were very much Presbyterian, early church. Um, and throughout church history, we always find a remnant, right, of the truth. Um, because the, the intent of the Reformation was not to split from Rome. It was to reform it, which means, like I said, going back to the basics. Up to the end of the Middle Ages, there was always good theology and bad theology. Sometimes coming from the same pen. I, I think it was Origen who had good, sound theology on who God is. But then he was also a universalist when it came to salvation. Right? He, he believed that everyone, all the philosophers of his day were saved uh, because they had good philosophy. Right? He, was, he was basing it on their morals. So you, you had good and bad all throughout church history. So uh, what the Reformation was doing was peeling away the bad and keeping the good core where we found the remnant of the gospel. Uh, because throughout church history, there was a remnant of the truth, even if it was surrounded by error and superstition. And even now, I would argue, among the Reformed, uh, there are teachings that came up that we can probably do away with. Uh, a couple of them, preparationism and theonomy. Those are my two to, to uh, really get to me. Um, I think we could do without those, those two doctrines. Uh, if you don't know what preparationism is. Um, the second great awakening, you have the anxious bench. Right? Oh, oh. Right? They, yeah. So it's a similar thing to that. You, okay. Someone who's caught between unbelief and salvation. He's in between. He's in the limbo. And you, you can never tell when somebody's in the limbo and when somebody's not. And they're in there, so... You better just preach to their condition. I said, why not preach the gospel and free him from that, that limbo? Anyway, that's, that's my um, qualm with that. So the Reformation, was a, it wasn't about getting rid of tradition, but establishing the tradition in the word of God. And, and those who deny the tradition are denying their link and fellowship with the saints of old. And it could be evidence of arrogance. Right? That we know much better than the people who have gone before us. See, pride always seeks to revise and change history for the sake of self-superiority. We, 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 we're better, better off now than they were in the first century, right? Because we, we know much more, right? Um, that is clear arrogance. Now, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church is governed by three sets of documents. It's primary, secondary, and there's no third, third area, tertiary, right? <laughs> tertiary standards. Uh, the Word of God is the primary. The Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms of the OPC are the secondary, and then the tertiary are, is the OPC Book of Church Order. Today we will we'll begin by speaking about the primary standard of the church, which is the word of God contained in the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. See, the scriptures stand above the church's constitution as it is 
above the secondary and tertiary standards. It, it is primary. Uh, it's what we call in theology the, the norming norm, right? It norms the norm. It norms our tradition. It establishes what we believe and how we practice worship. In the Shorter Catechism, the, it says the Word of God is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy God. And I would argue that our secondary and our tertiary standards flow out of the Word of God and, of course, the light of nature. Right? Um, the Bible doesn't give us detailed description uh, that, you know, how, say, to conduct certain, certain aspects of worship, right? People argue that. But we see the elements there in the scriptures. It norms it, right? God calls us to worship. We don't just enter into his presence on our own. He calls us, he saves us, he gives us new hearts, and then he calls us to gather, right? Uh, that's how he does it. The word of God is foundation, is the foundation from where the two other standards are built upon. They are erected from the word of God. We're not making this stuff up as we go along, right? We're not adding to the Bible as some have accused um, the Reformed of doing. Um, so let us look at two key texts that I have gone through with you before. And it teaches us how our tradition and what we believe and do is built upon the word of God. First, from Second Th- uh, Thessalonians 2, 13 to 15. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And how we are to receive Paul's spoken word or letter. Paul was an apostle, which is an office set apart and different than a pastor or elder. He was part of the foundational building blocks of the church. So how are we to receive his spoken word or letter? Well, like the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, You accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. And that word of God he is speaking about in context was the gospel that they were entrusted in bringing throughout the ancient world to establish churches, right? And the leaders of those early churches, one or two generations later, immediately, what did they do? Two generations after establishing churches, what do they do? Bifurcate. Expound on that. What, what do you mean by that? They started arguments and started new denominations. And new, two, say two generations after the church was established. Yeah. Yeah. Early. I, mean, just, I can't remember the first council, but automatically it started. It's like, well, God was there's actually three gods. Like, yeah. Gonna, That's right. And what came out of that? What, what did the church write up? The, um, the creeds, the early creeds of the church, right? Um, 
As soon as the church was established, there was false teaching and error. And earlier creeds were drafted. The Apostles' Creed, um, which sums up the high points of New Testament teaching. And it's possi- it was dated possibly as early as the 2nd century A.D. So that's, that's almost like right away, right? Because Revelation was written 90 A.D. Second generation was only, uh, the second century was only 10 years after that, right? Um, and they saw this uh, creed being passed around during uh, baptismal rites as early as the second century. We have the Nicene Creed, stab- uh, written 325-381, uh, and uh, Holy Spirit, uh, the section on the Holy Spirit was added, 381. Athanasian Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed or Chalcedonian definition written in 451. These were creeds uh, that were formulated to defend the true doctrine of God, the Trinity, who Jesus is, and who the church is, and how essential it is to be part of a church. Knowing the creeds will help you answer the second membership question. Do you believe in one living and true God in whom eternally there are three distinct persons? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who are the same in being and equal in power and glory, and that Jesus Christ is God the Son come in the flesh. You see what these creeds were doing, they were taking from the scripture what the scripture fundamentally teaches. And all true defenders of the fundamentals agree. Uh, in other words, if you don't believe in the creeds and what they formulate, you can't, you, you're not a Christian, in other words. And, and that's why these creeds were highly important to the church. Um, so we can say, judging by the way modern evangelicals in America think about the church, they would have problems with the Athanasian Creed. Right? The Athanasian Creed... Oh. I forgot my Bible that had it in it. But anyway, if someone can Google it, it would be great. If someone has a a high-tech phone, I don't have that kind of phone. Uh, The Athanasian Creed. Yeah, yeah. Is is the stereo still on? Yeah, I, I don't know how much you'll get of it. But oh, okay. I just unless I just go in the pulpit. Um, the affirmation? Yeah. Can you hear it? Can you hear it? It's still off. There's a, there's a surge protector back there. Check if it's on. Uh, behind the stereo. I'll, I'll just go. I'm sorry. No, it's fine. So like I was saying, the the way that the modern evangelical movement is thinking now about membership in the church, they would be considered in the old days as unbelievers. Uh, Yeah, you'd like to read that for me, Vicki? Would you like to read it, Luke? Sure, go ahead, Vicki. It's kind of long. Whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the small c Catholic faith. Anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will perish eternally. Now this is the small c Catholic faith. 
that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person, the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit is still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. Their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. What quality the Father has, the Son has, and the Holy Spirit has. The Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, the Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable, the Son is immeasurable, the Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, the Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet there are not three eternal beings. There is but one eternal being. So two, there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings. There is but one uncreated and measurable being. Similarly, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, the Holy Spirit is almighty. Yet there are not three almighty beings, but there is one almighty being. Thus the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Yet there are not three gods, but there is one God. Thus the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord. Yet there are not three lords, but there is one Lord. Just as Christian truth compels us to confess each person individually, both as God and Lord, so Catholic religion forbids us to say that there are three gods or lords. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten from anyone. The Son was neither made nor created. He was begotten from the Father alone. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. Accordingly, there is one Father, not three fathers. There is one Son, not three sons. There is one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. Nothing in this Trinity is before or after. Nothing is greater or smaller. In their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. So in everything, as was said earlier, we must worship their trinity in their unity and their unity in their trinity. Anyone, then, who desires to be saved should think thus about the trinity. But it is necessary for eternal salvation that one also believe in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ faithfully. Now this is the true faith that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and human equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time. He is human from the essence of his mother, born in time. Completely God, completely human, with a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards humanity. Although he is God and human, Yet Christ is not two, but one. He is, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to himself. He is one, certainly not by the blending of his essence, but by the unity of his person. For just as one human is both rational, soul, and flesh, so too the one Christ is both God and human. He suffered for our salvation, he descended into hell, he arose from the dead, he ascended to heaven, he is seated at the Father's right hand, and from there he will judge the living and the dead. At his coming, all people will rise bodily to give an accounting of their own deeds. Those who have done good will, either, will enter eternal life, those who have done evil will enter eternal fire. This is the Catholic faith. One cannot be saved without believing it firmly and faithfully.
That takes a lifetime to understand it all. But, um, <laughs> but you see, this is exactly, these creeds um, came out of, it, it was the application of scripture. Jude says to defend the faith, right? As soon as the church is founded, they begin defending the faith because they knew false teaching was going to come in. And what happened at the Reformation? Soon as we recovered the truth of the Bible, they start writing confessions. Uh, their confessions, uh, the first one, one of the first ones, the Augsburg Confession, you got the Belgic Confession, Articles of Religion, canons of, the Canons of Dort, and then the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms. Heidelberg. Heidelberg, there Heidelberg is in there. Yep, yep, I must have left it out. Did it? Yeah, yeah, I left it out, sorry. Um, which is a great confession. Um, so that, that's like the, the two-step, you know, you recover the Bible, the Scriptures. Okay, what does the Scriptures say? Right. And you can even go to the confessions to learn where the Scriptures came from. Right. What is the origin of, of the, the Holy Scriptures? Well, first, the origin of the Holy Scriptures is from God. 2 Timothy 3.16-17, to 17, most of you know this passage. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Peter 1.16-21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Luke 1, 1 to 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." Theophilus there is often believed to be speaking of a church in hiding, right? A church being persecuted at the time, which is interesting once you delve in. It might not be. I mean, there's different studies, but um, it may be. So when you think of Theophilus, think of a, a church in hiding, and he's trying to hide their identity. It's pretty interesting. Also, secondly, uh, the scriptures come from men. Uh, as personalities serve the purpose of God. I, I can never come to terms with my, uh, uh, you know how some people have conversion texts, or they have their favorite Bible quote? This is mine, from Galatians 5.12. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. It's probably the funniest text in all of Scripture. 
Those who are imposing circumcision on you, finish the job. That's what he's saying. Right? I'm like, I'm reading, I'm like, this is the word of God. Yet, Paul uses his personality, his temperament, for the sake of God's purpose. He says, forget them. They're, they're false teachers. He was harsh on false teachers. Right? Um, if anyone asks, that's my conversion text. text. Is the canon closed? That's what I mean by canon. Is, is the scriptures the only word of God today? Are there new revelations? Are there new sayings from God? Is God whispering in people's ears and telling them new things? No. Our position is that they are not. If they are, you should write it down and we'll call it scripture. Right? It would be part of, right? It will come right after Revelation if there are new revelations of God. But there isn't. Jesus says in Revelation 22, 18 and 19, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So, the Quran, is that the word of God? The Book of Mormon? No, can't be. Um, they are described, right? They are described as equal authority, as the word of God. But they're not, right? So Joseph Smith, and what, whatever he experienced, whatever it was, wasn't from God, Jesus warns in the final chapter of Revelation, and when he speaks of this book, I think, he's, I think he's speaking of the entire corpus of Scripture. Because he's not putting more importance on Revelation than the rest of Revelation, what he revealed in the Old Testament. So he's speaking of the entire uh, book that we have today. Nothing is to be added to it. And the accusation that the confession is an addition is, is a false accusation. The confession never reaches the level of our primary standard. That is the scriptures. It doesn't reach that level. It is the best uh, interpretation, I believe, but it doesn't reach the level of scripture. If there's something in it, what happens? We revise it. It takes a long time to revise it, right? Like we spoke of the civil magistrate. That took a, a while to revise that portion because we believe it is the best interpretation we have of scripture. The best um, book of doctrine, right? What we believe. Uh, best expression. But it doesn't take the place of scripture. No one's writings takes the place of the holy scriptures because they are the word of God. And mind you, the book of church order, our, our, our book of church order, is revised every five years. So, you know, I know the 2015 is much thicker than the 2020. It'll probably just thin out, hopefully, as we go on. But uh, they're, they're thinking of new ways to apply Matthew 18, right? Church discipline. They're thinking of new ways um, to summarize what we do rather than have this lengthy, you know, uh, description of what we do as a church. Uh, and, and leave room for, wiggle room for other 
processes that are better. But see, the scriptures never change, right? The scriptures do not change. They do not move. Now that leads to a bigger discussion. Hopefully I can wrap this up. Has the Bible been changed? That's the big question, especially for, you know, my generation growing up. That was the big question for young people. It's probably still the big thing, you know. Oh, I don't believe it because it's been changed. King James came along with some monks and they, they just changed the Bible, right? Well, first, the problem with that is that there were other translations before King James. You have Geneva, the Geneva Bible. I have a copy of it. Very good Bible. It's very close to the ESV, actually. Uh, you have the Tyndale version before King James. Martin Luther has had his translation. Wycliffe translated into English in the 1300s, right? So, no, that, that argument falls flat. Um, there are motives behind why people say the Bible has been changed. And one of those motives is that they don't want to be held accountable to God. And people spend their whole lives, Romans chapter 1, suppressing the truth of God. Uh, something you may not know about me, I was actually part of a cult for, say, from the age of 18 till, uh, I would say me, me, I was around 23, I think. It was about five years. Um, I don't know if they ever considered me part of their cult, but I, I hung around with the guys, right? Uh, and they often said that the Bible was changed, and the King James Version was changed. You wouldn't even guess for what, and we see it all over TV today. Um, the Bible was changed to benefit a certain race of people. And I'll only let you guess what race that is, right? Uh, because it so happened that King James was around, his time period was around the time of slavery, and, um, and they believed that the Bible was changed to promote slavery. The funny thing is, if you ever read 1 Timothy 1, it does not promote slavery. Actually, it's contra-slavery, the slavery that was known from the slave trade. So anyway, um, it it is impossible for the Bible to be changed. And there are so much evidence to prove it. And we can go to the fact that it is a collection of historical documents, right? That's the first evidence. It is a collection of historical documents with names, dates, and places. So-and-so ruled in the year of so-and-so. And And now we have the the archaeological evidence that this person ruled in this year and this person ruled in this year. It it was like it was written on purpose to say, you're not going to disprove this one. You cannot disprove this word of God. And there are over 23,000, and mind you, the information I'm gathering here is from the early 2000s. They haven't been updated. So what I'm giving you, just add a a few thousand to it, right? There were over 23,000 and now more archaeological digs regarding the accuracy of the Bible. So it's not, you know, these archaeological digs are not disproving the Bible's accuracy, it's actually proving it, right? It's proving that the Bible is true and it's true to what it says. It's made up of 66 books and it was written on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. 
And the original languages are Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. And they are written by over 40 different authors who never met each other, except for the New Testament authors, right? 40 different authors never met each other. And they were written between a span of 1,500 years. In the case of the New Testament, it was written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. When 1 Corinthians was written, there were at least 300 eyewitnesses still alive who who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. What... So when people say what we have today in the scriptures is not reliable, it's been changed, it is not based on evidence, it's based in unbelief. Nothing more, nothing less. Have you ever watched the History Channel and the wacky things they have on the Bible? Before I became a minister, before I had a call, in my early days as a Christian, uh, my friend and I just tore these documentaries apart. We didn't have to think long. That's how bad they are. Aliens in the Bible, all all these different shows. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, this is not rooted in anything scientific. It's not rooted in archaeology. It's rooted in unbelief. People by nature hate God. We do. We hate God naturally. And we'll do whatever it takes to disprove the Bible. That's our natural disposition to the Bible. We're trying to disprove it. Oh, what about this? What about this? They can ask, I mean, this question's galore that you can ask of the Bible. But what is your motive behind it, is the question. Then there's the other argument, right? The Bible's been changed. Another argument. Uh, There are multiple translations. Why all the translations? There are so many translations of the Bible that it is no longer similar to the original, is their argument. But the the funny thing is, that is not how we translate the Bible. Uh, The Bible, what we have, say in the ESV, is not a translation of a translation, right? Uh, Get a list of all the different versions. ESV, New King James, NIV, uh, NLT. What what is it? New New American Standard, another good one. They're not translations of other translations. Right? They belong to certain families, like New King James belongs to the King James, for instance. ESV belongs to the family of the RSV. Right? But the translations are translations of the original Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew manuscripts. Well, but we don't have the original. We don't. We don't have the original manuscripts of the scriptures. We have the second generation. As early, uh, speaking of the New Testament, as early as 120 AD, 20 years after John wrote Revelation. And when you think of that argument, it falls flat on its face, right? Because in our school systems, What do they rely on in history, um, say, regarding Julius Caesar? His Gaelic Wars. Everything we know about Julius Caesar is founded in his Gaelic Wars. And how many manuscripts do you think we have of the Gaelic Wars? 
12. And what's the dating? A thousand years after the original. So that's the earliest we can find on Julius Caesar. A thousand years after the writing of his Gaelic Wars, which I think by that time he was already dead. So, but that's fact in school. Julius Caesar is a fact. Aristotle, his poetics, we have less than 10 copies of the manuscripts. And that was founded 1,400 years after the original. Socrates, we have nothing. You've got to refer to Plato. No surviving writings of Socrates at all. Homer's Iliad, 2,100 years after the original. No originals. In the New Testament alone, we have 6,000 manuscripts, and the number has grown. This is old data. Uh, I'm, uh, I got this from Vodi ba- I got to give him credit. Vodi Bakum, he did a presentation on why I choose to believe the Bible. Watch it for yourself, it's wonderful. Why I choose to believe the Bible, just Google it, uh, YouTube it. 6,000 manuscripts of the New Testament founded 120 AD, 20 years after the original. It is second generation, two and a half decades after the original of the earlier translations. And um, the earlier translations were written in Syriac, Coptic, and Latin. Keep that in mind. Because another argument is that some monks came along and they were overly zealous and they wanted to make Jesus God, right? And so they, they messed with the translations of the originals and, 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 and made Jesus a God and uh, made him seem divine. And the Council of Nicaea was called together just for that, right? The, 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 the Nicene Creed, right? Where we get the Nicene Creed was called to make Jesus divine. And they had to get all these monks to change the Bible. No, that's not what happened. The Council of Nicaea only confirmed what was already there. Because when you think of it, why didn't they leave, why did they leave out the others? Why didn't they change the Apocrypha to make Jesus seem divine? One of the reasons why we don't accept the Apocrypha, right, these are extra uh, books uh, added to the Bible uh, over the years. Why didn't we accept it? One of the reasons why was it was inconsistent in the nature of God. It didn't regard Christ as divine. So why didn't they just change it? If they changed the Bible to make it seem that Jesus was divine, why didn't they change the Apocrypha? Well, you see, just think of the unlikelihood of them changing the Bible. Remember the three original languages on three different continents, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. Think of the number of the early manuscripts 6,000 plus. I think for, for both uh, Old and New Testament, it's like, I think we're up to maybe close to 100,000 by now. They're finding new ones every year, new manuscripts, and they all confirm it. On the bottom of my uh, both original text, I have a Hebrew and I have a Greek. At the bottom, they show you all the different variants of the, the manuscripts, all the diff- what they say. And all of the manuscripts basically say the same exact thing. Maybe a, a, a word here or there has been changed, but it doesn't change the original meaning. 
So you have three original languages. And then you have three early translations. Why don't you hear that on the news? Huh? Why don't you hear, hear it on the news? I'm, I'm making a joke, but why don't you hear it on the news, you know? And it's, it's kind yeah. of interesting you don't hear the truth, you know? No. No, you don't. You know, no, because these statistics would overwhelm people to give them no other choice. Yeah, and they would have to deny evolution too. Yeah. Yep. So, so to change the Bible, let's just say the New Testament. I'm not even going to get into the old. You would have to steal 6,000 manuscripts. Mind you, some of them are portions. Change all of them. Put them all back where you found them. That's three different continents. Then you have to go find the translations of the original. Syriac, Coptic, and Latin. You need to find those translations, change those, and put them back where you found them. And, and then you would have to find the original manuscripts of the early church fathers. We can't forget them. The early church fathers wrote commentaries on the New Testament and quoted them extensively. 95 to 98% of the New Testament can be compiled just from their quotes. Everything except for 11 verses of the New Testament is quoted by the early church fathers. So, you have to steal their original manuscripts in the writings, lie in the same way that you lied in the original, lie in the early (laughs) translations, and then lie in the same way with the early church fathers, Remember those lies, change those writings in the exact same way, and put them back where you found them. And if you do the calculation, I'm not going to give you, tell you how we come about that calculation, it would take a lifespan of 300 years to do all of it. How did King James and his monks change the Bible? They didn't. The Bible has not been changed Translations, some translations are better than others. I promote the ESV. It's a better translation. But the Bible has not been changed. It would have been impossible because the number of manuscripts and the consistency of them all. Like I said, there's difference in words here and there, but they all overwhelmingly say the same thing. These, this is because of supernatural events in history. The Bible has been preserved. The Bible has been preserved. And we see these supernatural events in the fulfillment of specific prophecies of the Old Testament. That's another way we know that the Bible is the Word of God. When, we, when I preach in um, the, order, the order of worship, and I pick out my texts, I try to make sure that the text I'm preaching of can be found in the Old Testament. So make sure you're paying attention. The Old Testament reading is there for a reason. It's there to prove the New Testament reading. It's a foundation, right? Or if I'm preaching out of the Old Testament, I make sure there's a link to the New Testament. There's hardly, you cannot find hardly any portion of the scripture, of one testament versus the other, where you won't find a link. I don't think there is a passage. 
There is a link somewhere. Sometimes it takes me longer to find it, and sometimes it's just a general link and I don't get the exact link, but there is a link. So here, God didn't provide, he, he, there is no such thing as blind faith, right? He wants you to know who he is and rely on him based on what he has revealed about his character. 66 books, three languages, three continents, 40 authors written over 1,500 years. Internal consistency, external confirmation. You have Philo, Josephus, enemy of the church. An enemy of the church confirming Jesus. And then you have the early church fathers. And we could go on and on about evidence, but I'm wrapping up here. That is not the only way that we know that this is the word of God. The evidence is on our side. We, we don't even need to argue it. The archaeology, everything is on the side of the Bible. It may be convincing and the Lord will use evidence. right? He'll use it in somebody's life. But we need the Lord to be convinced that this is the word of God. How do we know it is the word of God? The Confession of Faith, chapter 1, section 5, says this. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts is consistent through and through, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, that is through Jesus Christ, the many other incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it does abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet, notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. No one will be convinced unless it is the Holy Spirit convincing them that this is the word of God. Because like I said, we have enough evidence and we can go through them all. But if the Spirit isn't at work, they won't be convinced. Any questions, comments? Luke? I'll email you. No, I, I mean, you can do it now, unless everybody wants to take the lead. No, it's okay. Okay. Any other comments? Nope. All right. Let's pray.